to Ephesians 4. You may be wondering why sometimes you look at the TMS or the TMU app on the phone and it lists speakers and then you come here and it's not the speaker. These things happen. Harry texted me yesterday and you know he was away with the basketball team. He did not get injured though he was with the basketball team. And we know it happened last time Harry was doing basketball things. Uh, came down with a little bit of the flu, so if you remember to pray for him, and asked if uh, I could find a suitable fill-in. Mind you, it was like third quarter of the Super Bowl. I'm locked in. I'm figuring pretty much every other preacher I know is locked in or too spiritual to watch. And so I didn't even bother to find a backup. I just said I can do it. And so here I am. But if other times you see a speaker who is listed, and they're not here, and it's me. I apologize in advance. Like Nick Foles, I'm the backup, and I hope that like Nick Foles, I can deliver a win today. So here we go. Sorry, Patriots fans, not sorry. You win all the time. That's all I have to say about that. Ephesians 4, we are going to look at just the first two verses, and then we will move around elsewhere in the text. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and as we get to spend time together in it today, we give you all praise and honor and glory. We are thankful that we have the guidelines we need to live a Christ-like life, but yet in the expectation to live like your son, Father, you have given us the power through your spirit, so we are not left without resource, and even a resource now of illumination to see what only the spiritual mind can see, the mind of Christ, that the natural man cannot see. We ask that we would, and we would have the heart that is soft to your truth, unlike the natural man whose heart is hard to the truth. So in all these things, we're dependent upon your spirit who uses your word to inflame in our hearts a greater love for Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. It is him who we desire to know more of so we can bask in the glory of the gospel, the great love for you, you have for us in Christ. We ask these things. We know you're capable of it. In your son's name, amen. So... What Harry and I and others who plan on chapel planning like to do on Mondays is to say, hey, as we start the week, is there a way we can kind of call the community of the Master's University together around a text to put before us an ideal, something that we would say, hey, this would be valuable for us as a university to care about on Mondays, and Harry calls them heart days, and then sometimes on a Wednesday it's more of a, a mind day or a head day, a theological issue, and then Friday, and you saw this last week when we brought in Brian Hughes from one of the uh, members of the board uh, came and preached a very practical sermon on loving one another. Today is kind of maybe an extension of, of that. He took us to 1 Corinthians 13 on Friday, if you were here, and showed us the imperative of love and in what it looks like in action. And I know many of you were affected by that in wonderful ways, uh, maybe convicted to love to a greater degree. And I pray that today's text would help us in the same way on a dis different aspect of the Christian life, living Christ-like in a way that brings honor and glory to the Father. Now, as you think about that, just back it up a few weeks to when our president was here and took us through 
a few different texts through Ephesians and 2 Corinthians 3 and some others to kind of focus our eyes on Christ. And if I asked you to look back and think about, okay, when you are given an opportunity to hear Christ preached, a very practical question, you know, what do you walk away with impact by? If somebody were just to preach like Harry did in his first sermon this semester about the call to follow Christ, the call to discipleship. But I asked you a few days later, not what do you remember about the sermon, but how has that changed you? How has seeing Christ in the text of Scripture and being told about him actually impacted your life? And you may have a variety of answers. Maybe you describe a way in which Jesus was teaching and his teaching impacted you and his words moved in your life. And and that's a good thing And yet inherent that could be a danger, not a capital D, a lowercase d, but a danger of the potential to turn Jesus into a list of ethical imperatives, which liberal Christianity, such a paradox existed, does. It takes away the miraculous out of the scripture, like Thomas Jefferson of old, and just reduces Jesus to a teacher, one who has great ethics, and if you follow those ethics, you should have great love thy neighbor society, caring very little for Jesus as God. And so maybe that's how you could be impacted by sermons on Christ. Also, you could be impacted by sermons on Christ in the example of Jesus, that you see his compassion and you want to mirror that. You see the way in which he treats people and you want to mirror that. And again, good and right intended, but the danger, lowercase d in that, could be that you turn Jesus into just a, instead of an ethical example, maybe more on the Um, affectionate or romantic example of just the great divine love he has and we're just called to love people and care little for doctrine and imperative and who Jesus was as the son of God, but he's just this great example of love that came into the universe and changed people's lives all the way to the cross. And some forms of Christianity have taken it that way where the cross isn't about he is in the place of the sinner substituting his perfect life for your imperfect life, and you are considered justified by putting your faith in him. No, it's just he shows this great example of sacrifice, thus we should sacrifice. And so there are ways we we could see teachings about Jesus and maybe be drifting towards one way or the other. And yet when Dr. MacArthur was here, he took us to a text, and you could go there quickly as we were making our way to Ephesians 4 again. But 2 Corinthians 3 If you were to ask Dr. MacArthur, what would you say a sermon on Jesus actually does for you? It would be in 2 Corinthians 3. I think his answer would be this, because if you took what he preached for a week when he was here about union with Christ and how we become Christ-like, he took us to this verse, which he alluded to was monumental in his growth as a Christian in his 20s and as a pastor. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So I believe that his answer might be along the lines of, well, as you behold Christ in his glory, and you meditate on Christ, and you fellowship with Christ through the Spirit, and the Word, in prayer, and in study, that you become like Christ. John Piper phrased it that way, beholding is becoming. That as we behold the glory of the Lord shining in the face of Jesus Christ, we become like him. And yet, if you remember, 
I don't know which of the sermons it was, you could go back and listen, but one of the poignant statements that Dr. MacArthur made about our sanctification, how we grow in Christ's likeness, as some would say, well, yeah, that's great, just behold him, and in sort of a let go and let God approach to your sanctification as he does everything, because in our salvation, he did everything. Likewise, in our sanctification, we just let go of effort, and we somehow get absorbed into the great glory of Jesus Christ and just turn out like him. And he said a phrase, and I'm not trying to say it's, you know, perfectly, but I remember it was something along the lines of, I've never passively obeyed in my life, as in just by letting go and letting God and giving no effort, have been able to obey what I'm called to do in the scriptures. Something along those lines. And so I think as we now move into texts like today, where we see imperatives, we're being, if you look back in Ephesians 4.1, we are being urged to walk. That's a command, and it's a strong command. It's just not, hey, maybe try this every once in a while. It's an exhortation, it's an urging, it's a, it's a, a strong pushing in a direction of Christ-likeness that doesn't sound like passively sitting back and waiting for something amazing to happen in your life. That there's an expectation you should be able to do this. Yet at the same time, we do not want to forget, and if you understand the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are centered on all the realities of the believer's union with Christ. All the great blessings that we get, go back to Ephesians 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then from 4 through 14, in one long sentence in the Greek, he lists all the ways in which all of our spiritual blessings come from above down to us. We don't find them in ourselves because our salvation and sanctification and one day glorification all have to have a root in something outside of ourselves. We can't produce it ourselves or else we could some way contribute to our salvation and save ourselves. That's the opposite of Paul's mentality in the letter to the Ephesians. It's to let these believers know in Ephesus all the wonderful riches you have in Jesus Christ and your union with him in the first three chapters. And he has prayers that reflect that. If you look at verse 15, he's going to pray in chapter 1 that after he unleashes all these blessings you have in Christ from eternity past into the future with being sealed in the Spirit, he prays starting in 15 and then through 23 that verse 18 is kind of the high point, that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened and you would know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So he's praying for divine enlightenment to say, look, you have all these wonderful riches, believer. Do you know the resources that you have? And if maybe you hear, ever have heard some tragic tales in life of somebody who has squandered an inheritance, they had all these riches and they didn't know it. There was a story I read one time of a man down in South America who had been married in his early 20s and divorced just a few years afterwards. And through addiction to drugs and alcohol, became homeless and just lived a life of vagrancy on the streets. Well, the woman he married in his early 20s had no living family, no children, no remaining relatives, and she had an inheritance worth millions. And when she died, the only person she could think to leave anything to in her will was her ex-husband. So the authorities are trying to track this guy down, this homeless man on the streets of South America, to let him know that he had all these riches. And he would, you know, be in these towns and 
you know, people would, the authorities would come, and have you seen this guy? Oh, yeah, he's over in that bar, and somebody would tip him off, and he didn't know why people were coming for him. Maybe he had committed a crime sometime earlier in his life, and he always thought he was going to get arrested. So he continued to flee from the authorities the rest of his life, not knowing that they were coming to let him know, look, you have all this money in your account. It's for you. You don't have to live like this anymore. And the tragic end of that story is he died penniless, homeless in the streets, yet worth millions. He didn't realize what he had. And sadly, that can be a season of life for a Christian, that you wouldn't realize the glorious riches that you have in Christ. You're ignorant of them. And so Paul's prayer is for enlightenment in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, he describes this isn't just out there in the heavenlies without touching down in reality. Chapter two moves into, this is what actually happened in your life. You were dead in your sins, but God, verse four, being rich in mercy, has given you life in Christ. And now, verse 10, you are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand. And so it goes from kind of out there to now in here personally. This is true of you for every Christian. You're expected to live a certain way. And then in verse two, it's not just affecting your individual life, but it affects your life reconciled, not just to God, but to others. Jew and Gentile are reconciled together. There is no more hostility between them. And it ends in 22 with, you are all being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now that they are enlightened, they know this great, wonderful inheritance they have in Christ, all the power that they need. The only thing Paul understands they're lacking is the ability to use it. And so the end of chapter three, right after a short autobiography in one through 13, he prays again for them. But this is no longer a prayer for divine enlightenment. This is a prayer for divine empowerment. And we see that if you look in uh, chapter three, verse 16. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, again, the theme of riches, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What another wonderful prayer. This time this prayer is not for enlightenment and understanding and comprehension. This is for divine empowerment. That if you realize the riches that you have in Jesus Christ and all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm, you have within you because Christ is in you and you have union with Christ, the ability to live out the Christian life because the power of the spirit of Christ is in you. So it's no longer that he would be worried that you're ignorant and not enlightened. Now he would be worried that though you know what you have, you don't know how to plug it in to turn the ignition of the car to get the engine moving so you could drive the thing. You've been given the divine manual of your life in one through three and saying, this is who you are in Christ. And before he's gonna move into calling you to live it out in four to six, he has a prayer that says, turn the key. It's your connection to the spirit of God, shining the light on the love of Christ in your life, how much he loves you. Look back at verse 17, that you would understand being rooted and grounded in love. The foundation of your powerful living for Christ is first his powerful sacrifice for you in the gospel. And know the breadth and length and height and depth in the love of Christ. As in, when you understand God's love for you in Christ, it allows you to know the vast love that God showed to you in giving his son. He demonstrated his love to you. And not that you loved him first, he loved you. That allows you to be empowered to live a life for his glory, which is the final benediction in 20 to 21. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. Now that is a wonderful benediction. 
And you would hear a lot of preachers take that and turn that into a sermon in the new year that says something like, do you want to have the most abundant year of your life? God can do more than you could ask or think. Something along those lines, and you might be all excited. And it really can, can kind of, in, in a good way, get you excited for what God could use you for in your life. But in some ways, it could work counterproductive in thinking it's all about you, and it's all about all that you can ask or think when really the emphasis is still on God. Now to him who is able, he has the capacity to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. In fact, that kind of humbles us, doesn't it? Because it's basically saying to me, Adam, um, you just have affinitude to what you can ask or think even. There's things I can ask for and it's, he can do far more abundantly than that. So my asking is kind of small. And even in, then there's the things I can't even think to ask more than I can think. And, and it humbles me in a good way. But there could be a danger maybe in understanding all these wonderful riches to then go out and think it's all about us and we could do whatever we want and maybe somehow steal the glory and then in the church maybe be excited for what we want to accomplish for Christ's glory and start to run over others. Because we have all these riches. We have Christ in us. And so I don't think it's by chance that the first thing on Paul's mind in wanting to exhort the Ephesians to a Christ-like life is in our text this morning, a simple call to walk in humility. And that's where I want to center our attention for the remaining minutes we have, is to think about our walk with Christ and does it reflect the humility of Christ? Look back at our text. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. So Paul even in trying to come into this with some exhortation, and he's going to urge them, even reminds them, look, I'm just another prisoner for the Lord. I'm not sitting above you. I'm writing this from a jail cell. As a prisoner for the Lord, I'm going to urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, that calling is what you saw in 1 through 3, and I just took us through in short, but you can go back and read it for yourself, and we studied it with Dr. MacArthur here. But when he says, I urge you to walk, that's kind of your daily normal existence. It's a good word for it. Not to run, not to fight. You'll get to standing firm later in chapter six. But walk is used five times in four and five. And it's just this idea of the ordinary, the standard by which you live your Christian life. But look what he says, in a manner worthy of the calling. Now that word worthy, if you just took the most literal form of it, is basically a balance. It's a literal image of balancing the scale. So what is Paul calling the Ephesians to do as he calls them to walk? Is to say, if you put on the divine scales of salvation, all that God has done for you in Christ, chapters 1 through 3, they are far out of balance. They have hit the ground because there's nothing on this other side yet. And now he's saying your life is what's going to balance out that calling. All the great riches that you have available to you, all the enlightenment and empowerment you need to leave the Christian life, now let's take what you actually do from your calling to your conduct, from your identity on this side of the scale, who you are in Christ, your union with Christ, to your activity in your communion with Christ over here. And he's saying, when somebody looks at your life, Christian, it should be balanced out. That with all these wonderful riches that you have in your identity in Jesus Christ in chapters 1 to 3, it's going to start balancing out as you walk in a manner worthy of this calling. And the first grace of your sanctification to work out with fear and trembling, as he would say in Philippians 2, is the grace of humility. 
If you want, what's the first thing I need to slide on that side of the scale? If I'm going to balance out all these wonderful riches, well, doesn't it make sense, a little dose of humility, that if you are an Ephesian Christian and you have come out of pagan darkness, Ephesus was a dark city. I mean, it wasn't one of the major, major cities of that day. It was uh, an amalgamation of different religious beliefs. The temple of Artemis or Diana was there. It's big as a football field. It was false idol worship, both in the production of those idols, which made some money for people in the city of Ephesus, but also people believing that if they worship these false gods of wealth and gods of sex, that they would enjoy and the riches of that. They've been called out of that, and now some of them, having given over their idols, we read in the story in Acts, maybe they are actually physically destitute, and now they're thinking, hey, the riches I have again, maybe I'll be back on the right track, and he's going to balance them out with some humility, saying, look, Now that you've been called to be a Christian, you're not to walk around thinking of yourself better than everyone around you, Ephesians. Probably doesn't take too long to meditate upon that and find application in your life, does it? As you think about the riches that you learn of in Christ here at this institution. And in good ways, we we lead with that. Uh, We don't sell the Master's University as a place where, you know, we have a couple ideas on Christianity here. Take them or leave them. But there's a lot of other good stuff out there that you can study. No. I mean, our lead step in a lot of ways is our convictions. What we say we stand for here that hasn't changed in 90 years. Could you not see that with that could come the tendency to pride? Maybe when you talk to friends back home that chose a different university or college. And it could be easy to have ourselves puffed up in what we have, not to say those convictions are wrong and those things we believe are a bad thing, but it would be, is our first step towards others a step of humility? Because the image of walking is you have to have a good first step to stay on the right path. You take the wrong first step, you can end up far off of the destination from which you want to go. And our destination, as we speak this semester on these issues, we talked about love on Friday, now we're talking about humility. Our destination in those steps is to get us closer to Christ, right? That, that's what we're aiming for. But if you take the wrong first step, you're not going to end up where you want to be. Grew up in Pittsburgh. It's a city of bridges, 440-some bridges in the city of Pittsburgh. Rivers everywhere. And there's one bridge in particular that I grew up crossing and always wondered why it was laid out so odd that it would start as the Glenwood Bridge and it would start on the Homestead side of the river and get over to Hazelwood and you'd cross this bridge and as soon as you get on the other side you have to make this really hard left turn that banks around and then connects you into this town but when you look at it from far away on a map you would think you know it just would seem that they could have built the bridge straight over to the other town why does it you, you go over on this bridge, and it's like you're driving right into this hillside, and then you do this hard left and then this right to get you back into the town. Well, in, you know, being interested in my own city, came across an article one time that told me when they built that bridge and they started on the homestead side, the architects of the bridge design were off by a quarter of an inch in their degrees of measurement. And what that small, wrong degree of measurement on the one side led to was missing by hundreds of feet on the other side. And that's our Christian life. When we have all these wonderful riches, we understand all these wonderful things about our faith, and yet if our first step is not a step of humility and gentleness, we could end up as a Christian far away from the desired end to which we've been called. 
to walk worthy of a calling in Jesus Christ. Now, the point of this morning isn't to just talk about humility for humility's sake. Uh, The Old Testament, humility is a virtue that even if you're an unbeliever, there's benefits to being a humble person that Proverbs 11, 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. And I would venture to say that the Old Testament, particularly in the Proverbs, highlights the difference between pride and humility in a, in a way that's broad enough to say if you, I was to talk to an unbeliever and saw pride in him in the path that it was taking them down, even without speaking of God or Christ, I could probably give him some advice from the Proverbs about pride that might benefit his life. And so there's a general call to humility in the Old Testament. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That it's, you could read that and there could be a, a benefit for you just in wanting to be humble for the sake of humility's sake so people think more highly of you or that you know, people just don't think you're the biggest jerk in the world. Because prideful people tend to, even if they're successful, push people away because over time if you're working for a prideful boss or if you have a prideful teammate or somebody in the dorm is prideful, I mean, in general, I would say you probably just don't have a great urge to spend a lot of time around them. So just thinking generally about the idea of humility and pride and wanting to say, you know what, humility, just in general, it might benefit me to be a more humble person in society. Proverbs would agree. But we're not looking for just the general. We're looking in Ephesians at the specific that to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of a Christian is to be filled with Christ-like humility and gentleness is paired with it here. So go to Matthew 11. And if the goal is to become more Christ-like and to behold Christ has become like him, we see an example from the life of Jesus, his teaching about himself that pairs with this scripture. Whether or not we, Paul had it in mind, we don't know, but I find it interesting that if the first thing on Paul's mind for the Ephesians to be walking in a manner worthy of the calling of being a Christian is walk in humility and gentleness, it's interesting to me, to say the least, that when Christ describes himself in the Gospels, the only time he describes himself in adjectival form and saying, I'm like this, this is me. I'm not talking about describing himself as the son of God or the son of man. But just words that we might say like, hey, well, what's Jesus like? Well, let him tell you in his own words. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Same two words you find Paul use for the first steps of walking in a manner worthy of the calling are the two words Christ uses when he describes himself in the Gospels. The word gentle, same word as Paul uses over there. It's a word for, you know, we usually associate that with meekness, but we don't use meekness a lot. That doesn't help us a ton. But kind of it, as it's described, gentleness is, I guess if you describe it in the, in the negative, it's not being abrasive, not being harsh, not being rough. Gentle, as it was described by one commentator, is... You're only angry at the proper times. You're never angry at the wrong time. Because you have a gentle disposition. Yes, we can always go to the passage about Jesus flipping the tables in the temple and clearing them out and say, look, he was righteously angry. Right. He was only angry at the time he should have been. But never any other time in his life was he angry at the wrong time. 
And so there's this idea of gentleness. But then this word for lowly in heart in the ESV is the same word for humility in Ephesians 4.2. It's lowly in heart translated really literally because it just means to get low, to be low to the ground. And when we think about that in our lives and how does that look, I think it's in a good way a low estimation. If we're going to talk, you know, being low to the ground, a low estimation of one's own importance. I didn't say your own self-esteem or your identity in Christ. Don't hear that this morning, that we're just trying to beat you up and say, you're no good, lowly worm. No, it's, it's an attitudinal thing. It's you, if you want a good definition of humility, it's a low estimation of your own importance. If you want to know, see a humble person, they, they don't walk around thinking they deserve everything, entitled, that you know, human beings should part in the cafeteria like the Red Sea as they move towards the front of the line because they're in a hurry. Not maybe thinking that everybody else is in a hurry too. And you could play that out in a variety of ways in your life, very practically speaking. But I, when I think about Christ and wanting to be like him, it's one thing to say, man, I just want to be humble like Christ. But I think where it hits me in another angle is when I think in the other dimension that, you know, there was never a moment in Christ's life where he was, sure, he was always humble, but he was never proud. And he had so many things he could, Rightly so, should have been proud about. But he was never proud. He was never a person that somebody, if they were hanging around Christ, could have called him on that. And an attitude he might have had to somebody of lesser importance. Now, he was the son of God, so in every way, everyone was less important than him. I mean, he was on a mission to save sinners from their sin. And yet, he had the time and the care and the compassion to care for the people that were around them, to stop if somebody touched the hem of his garment, to be stopped in his progress somewhere else, to hear from somebody saying, hey, my daughter is dying. Can you do something about it? To never want the honor given to him, and even in the upper room, to be the only one that had the sensibility to wash the rest of everyone's feet, the task of the lowliest person in the room, always giving an example to his disciples of what true humility looked like. But the greatest example is in his incarnation, and Paul picks that up in Philippians 2. If you want to say, was Jesus, was he just, you know, he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. And you're like, ah, gotcha, Jesus. Anybody that calls himself humble just violated the rule of humility. Except that when you look at his example of humility in Philippians 2, you see that what it was really about was his incarnation. It was the fact that he stepped out of heaven and became man. Turn to Philippians 2, just one page over probably in your Bible. What did humility look like played out in the life of Jesus? It was both attitudinal and in action. So Paul's trying to help the Philippians stay unified. They, you could read in chapter 1, they're probably concerned about him because he talks about, don't be concerned about me. He's locked up and they're wondering, you know, what's going to happen to Paul? And he's saying, look, in chapter 1, what's happening to me is helping to serve the gospel because unbelievers are being saved and believers are being encouraged and even people that don't like me that are preaching Christ out of envy of me. Hey, if they're preaching Christ, I don't care. Talk about a humble attitude of Paul. Again, he says, because the ultimate aim in my life is to live for Christ and to die as gain. And if the gospel's making progress, then so be it. I'm staying for your good. 
And then he says, similar to his language in Ephesians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So the same language of let's, uh, let's even up the scales, Philippians. And throughout the book of Philippians, there's this emphasis on unity. And it comes to a high point in chapter 2 where he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so that's great. He's, he's kind of arguing from like, okay, if there's, look, I'm locked up and I know you have a great affection for me, Philippians. So if there's anything you could do for me, any comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy, could you just do this one thing? Can you complete my joy by being of the same mind and have the same love and being in full accord and of one mind? And it's like, oh, great. So you're calling us to unity. Is that just like a bumper sticker coexist? We slap on our car and everybody stands around, hold hands, kumbaya. Or is it something that's a little more, as Brian said Friday, which I loved, Christianity in blue jeans, shoe leather faith. Because a call to unity is just that. I mean, people in society are calling for that all the time. Yeah, we need to be unified. Let's all be friends. Let's put aside our differences. But when we're called to unity, we're also called to a killing of self on our own desires. And thinking, okay, if we're all called to be united, how do I step back properly? How do I get in flow with everybody else? Well, Paul tells them, verse 3, here's humility in action. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significance from yourselves or than yourselves. So there's an attitude of humility there, which is, look, when I look around the room, as my former pastor once told me, Adam, everyone is more important than you. Ouch. Really? Can you actually live like that? Can you live? Because that's really what verse 3 comes down to. If in humility you're counting others more significant than yourselves, um, you can go and try to parse that up in the Greek, but I'm pretty sure it comes down to this principle. Everyone is more important than you. Back to our definition of humility. A proper view, a realistic view of your own importance. And imagine living a life where you say everyone is more important than you in the dorm, in the classroom, in this school, at home. You might come to like the existential crisis of, but who will care about me if I don't? Well, if you're actually living in Christian community where everybody believes in the same ideal, hundreds of people are caring about you as you care about all those other hundreds of people, right? It's a web. It's interconnected. If everybody turns inwardly and only cares about themselves, no one cares about anyone else. But as you live out this ideal that Paul is saying, have this attitude in yourself that others are more important than me. Well, if we're all thinking that others are more important than us, then think about even just in a small way if you share a dorm with three other people. If you are all about you in that dorm and they're all about them, it's going to be pretty nasty in there. I think on a physical level, it'll just be gross. But more so on a spiritual level, that it's just about me and my alarm clock and how late I want to stay up and what I'm going to do. But when it's, you know what, I'm considering that person and that person and that person instead of myself, but they are considering me and that person and that person instead of themselves, suddenly I have coverage three on one rather than one verse three works itself out in pretty practical ways, attitudinally. But it's just not an attitude of humility. Look at verse 4. This steps into some blue jeans. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's an activity. 
That's, I'm going to look to your interest, which is going to cause me to take action. If not only I'm considering you more important than me, if I see a need that you have, that's going to usurp my need. That's going to move up on the list. And I don't walk around expecting everybody else to do it for me, but in a real Christian environment, that's actually how it would play itself out. Because as I'm caring for your need and looking to your interests, maybe someone else or even you is looking to mine saying, but no, I want to help you too. Now, it could, you know, be one of those like silly examples where you're sitting at the table after the check is giving in the restaurant and you just keep like trying to grab the bill from each other. No, I'll pay. No, I'll pay. No, I'll pay. No, I'll pay. And and, then finally the waiter's like, look, I've been here five minutes. I just want you guys out of here. Split the thing. Speaking from experience as an ex-waiter. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul is saying, hey, if you want to be unified, if you want to walk forward in a manner worthy of the gospel, Philippians 1 and Ephesians 4, you got to have some humility in attitude and action. But, and this is where Christ-likeness comes in. This is going back to the beginning. How does this actually change us? We look to the example of Jesus, which is what Paul turns our attention to. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's going back to your union with Christ. You can have this mindset because you already have Christ in you. You have him in your heart. You have him in your mind. First Corinthians would say you have the mind of Christ. So you can do this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There's an attitude. He really didn't sit up in heaven thinking, you know what? If I go down there, I lose all the glory that I have up here. Well, Paul says, for your sakes, he became poor. He had an attitude that wasn't going to stay up there, but an attitude that said, I'm not going to consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. But where's the action? It could be all attitude. If if the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world said, you know what? I'm just going to stay up here. I really feel bad for those people. I really do. My heart goes out to them. Man, there's just a mess. But he never did verse 8, we would be left in our sins. Being found, or sorry, verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So beholding Christ in both attitude and action, in how he describes himself, in the example that Paul uses to show us from the life of Christ in the incarnation. It was both an attitude that says, I'm not just gonna stay up here and hold on to this thing I could grasp, but I'm gonna empty myself of that and go down there so that these sinners can find forgiveness in me. And that is the good news of the gospel, and that's where our salvation comes in. But our sanctification also takes its cues from the life of Christ. We learned about Friday. It's learning to love like Christ loved. And now today it's walking humbly like Christ walked. And I would just ask you this morning as you look at your life on a Monday at Masters where we're just saying, hey, how are we starting this week? Could a dose of Christ-like humility in your attitude and in your actions be helpful? I would say it could. It's needed for me all the time. There's... A book, uh, it's an excerpt from a book by Stuart Scott, biblical counseling teacher, and it's just a small excerpt called From Pride to Humility. And he outlines 30-some manifestations of pride as described in the New Testament. Now, I could commend that to you and say, hey, go find it. You could actually just Google 
Stuart Scott from Pride to Humility PDF, and you can pull it up. But if you want a practical way to start working on this in your life, I've done this from time to time, um, where I just go through all those manifestations. Another way to say it would be fruits of pride. And I just look at them. And then in the course of a week, I carry a journal with me, and I try to write down at the end of the day or maybe in the middle of the day when I have a time to break, ways in which I could remember a prideful attitude or an action. And just, I just do it every once in a while for a week, not to be burdensome on me, but just to show me the reality of if I can see the manifestations, if I can see the fruits of pride in my life, I can work my way back to the roots. So this document of 30 manifestations of pride helps me to see, oh, you know what? Yeah, I may, I'm probably sure at some time in my life I've done all 30. But there's maybe five or six on the list that are recurring. That in the course of my growth as a believer, I just see, man, I still keep going back to this one or this other one. I struggle with anger because somebody doesn't live up to the expectation I have of them. Well, the, the root of that's pride. But I needed to see the fruit of it to get me there. Does that make sense? I had to work back from the fruit to the root. And then say, you know what, man, I, I need the power of Christ in me. Back to Ephesians 3, the prayer to be strengthened. That if I really know the love that God has for me in Christ, I don't need to get angry over somebody not living up to my ideal. Because I'm not their master. They don't live in Adam's world. We live in God's world. And we have Christ in us. And I'm called to serve others. And so that's just an example of how you can start to make an effort against this. And you could even do it with a few friends, trusted voices in your life that you could say, hey, can you help me work on this? I'd like to become a more humble person and I wanna actually put the blue jeans on that make it happen. So there's one way that you can work on it, but we just encourage you this morning as we consider the humility of Christ, if our campus is gonna be known for its Christ-likeness, everywhere that we go, there would be an effort, I would think, to adopt both the attitude, everyone is more important than me, and the action that I have the opportunity to look to their interests and serve them rather than be expected to be served. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to look into your word, to be challenged by it, and yet in being challenged by your word, it is important for us to know that we do have the power in us as we see Christ in the scriptures, as we behold his glory, we are transformed in our own likeness to him one small step at a time. And yet we would wanna take strides. We would wanna walk in a manner worthy of the calling through which we have been called. And we know we can do it through the strength and the power that you supply. We ask that even in looking to this this morning, it would start us on the right step this week for your glory, we pray in Christ's name.